I would like to say uh, good morning to you all. If you're new, I'm Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from the pew in front of you. And if you grab one of the black Bibles, you'll find Romans 15, appearing on page 949. We'll be reading verses 5 down to 7. As uh, has been previously mentioned, the uh, kids, Cornerstone Kids and Pebbles is in with us. And so I want to say a word or two to our little guests with us. Um, I love having you guys in the service with us. It's a wonderful privilege that we have to join together as one church. And I just want to say, uh, whenever we get together as a church and we read the Bible, God is talking to us. And so I know it's hard to sit through a whole message and listen to me jabber on and on, but I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to ask God to give you help so that you can listen and just be aware that others around you are also trying to listen. And with God's help, we know that you can too. So let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer. But before we do, let's read the passage we'll be considering. Then I'll pray and then we'll get to work. Should be uh, 40, 40, 45 minutes or so. So this is Romans chapter 15, verses 5 to 7. Taking a break from Luke to consider this, these three verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you through your Son, Jesus, asking that you would give us your Holy Spirit to understand your word. Speak to us now, your servants. Give us ears to hear what you would speak to this, your church. And for the little ears here and the little hearts here, give them attentiveness and calmness and peace to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Grant them faith to believe. Amen. It's winter, 1812. James Madison is the fourth president of the United States. Great Britain is at war with Napoleon in France. Tensions left over from the American Revolution are building. And it seems that another war with England is imminent. The great chief Tecumseh looks like he'll be siding with the British. 
While Napoleon marches on continental Europe and Americans are preparing for another war and Tecumseh is gathering his troops, a group of 26 particular Baptists in Ohio gather in the home of Charles Hilliard, Jr. On the Lord's Day, February 21st, 1812, on a few chairs, a rude bench or two, some boards laid with bits of log, these pioneers sat under the word, sang hymns, and covenanted to form the Salem Baptist Church with Elder Thomas Childers serving as their pastor. Those present that day recall them receiving the Lord's Supper and baptizing in the Miami River. In February, mind you. (laughs) Pioneers, bro. Their covenant opened with these words, and I quote, Having been enabled through grace to give ourselves to the Lord and to each other by the will of God, account it a duty incumbent to us to make a declaration of our faith and practice to the glory of God, knowing that with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And they go on to confess the doctrines of Scripture. Original sin and effectual calling and particular redemption and the perseverance of the saints. And then they would declare, and I quote, We are not to forsake the assembling together for the worship of God, and our seats are not to be found vacant at church meetings unless providence hinders. We are to bear each other on their part according to our ability in defraying the necessary charges of the church. We are to watch over each other according to God's word. We are not to be found in the neglect of our duty to our brethren, to our families, or to the commonwealth, and to pray for the peace of Zion, the Lord enabling us to do so. End quote. In the years that followed, these precious pilgrims preached the gospel and observed the ordinances and maintained church discipline. They cultivated love and fellowship, and the Lord added to their number. They supported global missions in Burma through the missionary Adoniram Judson. And between the years of 1832 and 1838, Salem Baptist Church would send pastors to plant churches north of Sydney and in St. Mary's and in Covington. A hundred years later, in 1911, now much larger, necessarily meeting in a new place, members voted unanimously to unite themselves with another church and to form the Piqua Baptist Church. 297 charter members held hands as they sang, Blessed be the tie that binds. Pastor F.B. Neal declared the church is one. Our world is much changed since those days. The gospel, however, is not. 
nor is the mission. And here we are, more than a hundred years since, considering doing something similar. In a few minutes, members of Piqua Baptist Church and Cornerstone Piqua will vote their conscience to either unite our two churches into one or to remain as two churches preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Piqua. The text I have chosen this morning in preparation for this vote comes from Romans 15. And there's a number of reasons why I've chosen this text. The book of Romans is helpful for us as we consider uniting our churches. And this text in particular is helpful to remind us what is at stake in Christian unity. The big idea is very simple. And it comes from verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God and for the advance of his gospel. Three points to guide us through. Number one, in Christ we have one mind, which we'll see in verse 5. Point two, in Christ we have one voice, which we'll see in verse 6. And finally, in Christ we are one church, which we'll see in verse 7. Let's take a look at verse 5 again. In Christ we have one mind. The Apostle Paul prays, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Now you'll notice that verses 5 and verse 6 are a prayer. They are a request of the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the Romans. They are a prayer to his God to enable his people, these Roman Christians, to live together in such harmony with one another that they would have one voice one mind, one purpose, one heart, as they serve the advance of the one gospel of the one God. Now, a brief survey of the book of Romans, I think, is helpful for us to understand why Paul prays in this way. The Apostle Paul did not plant the church in Rome. In fact, he had never visited there before writing this letter. The church in Rome started rather organically when Jews returning from Jerusalem after Pentecost started a church. Acts chapter 2 tells us that when the Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem, there were 3,000 Jews who, were, who repented, who believed, who were baptized, and were added to the church. And some of those Jews, Acts says, came from Rome. And so after the festival of Pentecost, they would have returned home and began meeting together. And it seems the Lord was pleased to grow the church in Rome. About 15 years later, the Roman emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of the city of Rome. And so the, Ro the young Roman church would have suffered the loss of all of her founding members. Gentile Christians, or non-Jews, that is, Gentile Christians would have been the only ones left in that church, and they would have continued on the ministry. 
Well, then about five years later, Claudius lifts the ban on the Jews, and they're allowed to come back home to Rome. The founding members of that church would have found their church very much changed. From Paul's letter, it's clear that the issues of Jew and Gentile distinctions, the place of the Mosaic law, and the place of Jewish customs in the life of a Christian had created some conflict in the church. And the apostle is planning to visit Rome as he seeks their financial support for his gospel mission in Spain. And he knows that if these conflicts are not resolved, their witness to the gospel and their support of his mission will suffer. And Paul's solution to these factions in Rome, these conflicts, the fighting over preferences and differing of convictions... Paul's approach to these issues is to preach the gospel. Romans is the most comprehensive explanation of the gospel that we have in the canon of Scripture. It is a theological masterpiece. It is Paul's magnum opus. Romans has two parts. Chapters 1 through 11 deal with justification by faith alone. And chapters 12 to 16 unpack the implications of justification by faith alone. So in chapters 1 through 11, Paul reminds these Romans that right standing with God is based on nothing in them. Nothing that they have done, good or bad. It is not based on their ethnicity, but solely based on the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And he reminds these Romans that we are sinners, all of us, and that we need a Savior, whether we're Jew or whether we're Gentile. He reminds these Roman Christians of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which has secured a full pardon from sin and the righteousness of God for all who turn to him in faith. Paul teaches these Roman Christians of the glorious freedoms that they have been granted in Christ. And he caps the whole thing off, giving praise to God for his work in saving a people, Jew and Gentile, through Jesus Christ. And friend, if you're a guest with us, and you're not a Christian, might I encourage you to do something. If you don't have a Bible, take one of the Bibles from in front of you. Take it home today and read Romans 1 through 11 this afternoon. It'll take you about an hour or so. Read it slowly. If you have questions, jot down the questions and then come back next Sunday and ask someone to help you answer the questions that you have about what you read in Romans 1 to 11. I know these people here and I know that they would love the opportunity to tell you more about Jesus Christ. I know that they would love to tell you that when you turn from your sins and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God will show mercy to you and pardon you of your sins and he will grant you even eternal life. So do that today and we'll see you next Sunday. Well, chapters 1 through 11 are all about how God makes sinners right with him through Jesus. And then chapters 12 through 16 kind of unpack the implications of what that means for our life. Because we are God's people, this is how we are to live. And it is in this section, chapters 12 to 16, where we find ourselves this morning. Having received the good news of eternal life by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, 
to the glory of God alone, this is how we live. And Paul says, according to verse 5, we live in harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wrote this letter to the Romans in, in Greek, and the phrase, live in such harmony, is a translation of one Greek word. The word means, it refers to the, the basic orientation of the person, uh, their thought patterns, the affections, and the will. The old Bible translations use the word like-minded. And Paul is praying that these Roman Christians would be of one mind together. It's the same word he used twice in Philippians 2.2 when he says, Complete my joy being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. This harmony, which is the subject of Paul's prayer, notice that it comes not when the church seeks to be of one mind with one another. This harmony comes when the church seeks to be of one mind with Christ. Notice the basis of the harmony is being in accord with Christ Jesus. You see, Christian unity is not to one another as much as it is with one another. Unity is to Christ. And having been granted unity to Christ, we are one together. It's a really, really simple concept and a really complicated in practice. Those of you who have been members of a church for well, any amount of time know just how difficult unity can be. Which is probably why we have the descriptions of God in the first part of verse 5. Notice that Paul calls him the God of endurance and the God of encouragement. It's because in the first part of chapter 15, Paul has been encouraging these Christians at Rome, some of whom he calls strong, others he calls weak, to bear with one another. He tells the church in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Because after all, this is what the Lord Jesus has done for all of us. And Paul reminds these Romans that God has given them the scriptures to instruct them in this. To give them endurance and to give them encouragement and to give them hope. And then he prays to the God who would give these things to them. Don't you get the sense that Paul knows a little something about church unity? Because he's saying that it requires endurance. He's saying that it requires encouragement. Well, it wouldn't require either of those things if it were easy, would it? But unity is both something that has been granted to us, but it's also something that we have to work for. It's also something that we have to choose. It's also something that we have to, to use Paul's words, maintain. Ephesians 4 verse 3 says, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So our unity has been granted to us by virtue of our union with Christ, but it is also something that we have to take hold of and fight for. It's also something that is under assault. Sometimes maintenance of unity is accompanied by frustration. 
which would require God-given endurance from His Word. Sometimes maintenance of unity is accompanied by discouragement, which would require encouragement from the Word. So how important is it, church, for all of us to be tethered to God's Word? For reasons only known to the dead in Christ and for reasons only known to the Lord Himself, less than 10 years or so after the formation of the Pickle Baptist Church, they experienced some frustration and discouragement and they were forced to part ways with their pastor. If the Lord is pleased to bring our two churches together, brother, sister, you can rest assured that there will be attacks from the enemy on the horizon. So guard your hearts, dearly beloved. Do you have to wonder if our great-great-grandparents in the faith were here with us today, how might they advise us as we're preparing for this vote? Do you think that they would tell us to keep Christ and His gospel and His mission in front and center? And to humble ourselves? I think they would. I think they would. Paul prays for the church in Rome that they would have their minds and their purposes oriented toward Christ. And this is because Paul knows that if it's 200 people or 2,000 people, if they're all focused on the same point on the map, then they can have one mind and they can work together. And working together with one mind, they can sustain the inescapable differences of opinions between them. And they can weather the differing conclusions about matters of practice and Christian freedom. And they can withstand the attacks of the enemy. With one mind, focused on the glory of God in Christ, God will give them one voice. And that brings us to the next verse. One mind in Christ creates the one voice in Christ. Verse 6. Together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Together, with one voice. This phrase has been somewhat of a motto for our churches for the last 12 months or so. We've called this whole endeavor the One Voice Project. The purpose of the church of Jesus Christ is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ in saving hell-deserving sinners like us through His cross. That's our one message. And we're together in this. We have one mind and together we have one voice. But that's just it. This one voice must be calibrated by the Scripture. By the phrase that follows, we have one voice to do what? To glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, any organization can have one voice. What matters is what that one voice declares. The church of Jesus Christ is to herald the good news of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. We all play different parts, but it's the same song we sing. 
Can you imagine the sound of an orchestra in which every instrument is given a different piece of music? The brass given Beethoven and the woodwinds given Mozart and the percussion playing Led Zeppelin. It would be torture. It would be chaos. But you see, sadly, this is what becomes of many churches whose voice has not been calibrated by Scripture, but by their own traditions and by their own personal preferences. Because you have one segment of the church saying this, and you have another segment of the church saying that, and they talk over each other, and they talk past one another. They have no shared mission. They have no shared agenda, and thus they're not building each other up. The saints are not being equipped for the work of ministry. But worse than all of this, their testament to the power of God in the gospel becomes dim, and their proclamation of that gospel becomes muddy. And if our two churches are to avoid that tragic fate, then each one of us must keep in mind that we all are about the glory of God in Christ. That we are all about working for His mission and no other. Because it's only then that discordant voices will sing as one in harmony with one another. Only then will we have the strength to set aside our differences and to lay down our personal preferences for the good of the other and the glory of Christ. That is what is at stake here. That the glory of God would be known from this place. The glory of God is the significance of who He is. It is the revelation of His majesty. It is the whole mountain range of His perfections, of which His grace in His Son in the cross is the highest peak. His glory is His weight, His significance, His unavoidable, unignorable brilliance. And as God's people, we rejoice in Him. We gaze at Him until our hearts sing. We point others to Him. And if we lose sight of this, His glory as our purpose, then our vision shrinks. We become about something else, something far less glorious, and we become small. And Paul knew this. And in a few verses later, he's going to ask this little church for money. He's hoping to go to Rome to collect money and to go to preach the gospel in Spain. And he knows that they're bickering over preferences, over matters of Christian freedom, over who gets to do what in the church. This church risks cutting itself off from the privilege to participate in the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. By digging in their heels, they cut off their legs. Our forebearers planted three churches in the 1830s with far less disposable income than we have. With one mind and one voice and hearts ablaze for the glory of God in Christ, who's to say that we can't follow their example? So Cornerstone, Pickle Baptist Church, your vote today is about one thing. Will the gospel of Jesus Christ advance more fruitfully 
as one church or as two? That's what you're voting on today. Vote your biblically informed, spirit-inspired conscience and may the Lord's will be done. In Christ we have one mind. In Christ we have one voice. And now we come to the one imperative in these three verses. Welcome one another. In Christ we are one church. Let's read verse 7 as we close. Therefore, here's your implications. Here's what you're to do. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the implication of the one mind and the one voice. We welcome one another. To welcome one another means to take each other in, to receive each other, to accept the presence of someone with friendliness. It means to grant them access to your life, to your very heart. And this word appears in the present imperative. It indicates that welcoming one another is something that every Christian chooses to do every day. It is the habit, it is the lifestyle of the Christian. If we are to be one church, if this is the Lord's will, then each member of this church is to welcome every other member of this church. We must apply verse 7. Practically speaking, welcoming one another means folding someone else into your life. Receiving someone else who is different from yourself. They have a different way of doing things than you. Now, of course, you don't need to be told to welcome people who are very much like you, do you? You just like them because they're like you. You have to be told to welcome people who aren't like you. It is an act of faith. To receive people into your life who are different from you. Birds of a feather flock together, right? It's easy to be friends with friends. But it takes faith to extend a warm welcome to welcome people who differ with you in matters of style and opinion and preference. And Paul is calling the Roman church to bear with one another, to welcome one another. And this takes faith. But church, notice where Paul tells these Christians to source this faith. Where are you going to get this faith? To welcome one another? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The strength and the power to do the work of ministry comes from what God has already done for us in Christ. If our churches are to come together, it will be really easy to just keep your head down, to stick with people that you're comfortable with, and to do your own thing and just sort of, I don't know, bide your time. And if you feel that temptation to just close yourself off, I just ask you to consider, is this how Christ welcomed you? With coolness? With indifference? Or did Christ welcome you with arms open, knowing your faults, with a warm smile, knowing your flaws? The old Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon is helpful on this point. He, he put it this way If the Lord Jesus has indeed received us and bears with our weaknesses and follies, well, may we have patience with one another and show pity to each other's infirmities. 
Christ did not receive us because we were perfect. Because he could see no fault in us or because he hoped to gain somewhat at our hands. No, but in loving condescension, covered our faults and seeking our good, he welcomed us into his heart. So, Spurgeon says, in the same way and with the same purpose, let us receive one another. If we are to be one church, we must welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Look, we're all unfinished projects. We all have our faults and we all have our flaws. And that includes your pastors. You've heard me say this before, but if I have not offended you, it's simply because you have not known me very long. I'm not trying to offend anyone. That's never my intention, but that's just the way life works. How is the Lord going to teach us the joy of giving forgiveness until we have something to forgive? Church unity is messy business. If these two churches come together, it's going to be messy. I'm just going to tell you right now, it's going to be messy. This is why Proverbs 14.4 said that where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops comes by the strength of an ox. Do you want a clean church? Then you have to find one without people in it. But abundant crops come by the strength of many people. Uniting our churches will be messy. You might get your feelings hurt. But I promise you it will be worth it if through our combined efforts and prayers the gospel of Jesus Christ advances in Pequot, Miami County and the world. And notice what will be the result of our welcoming of one another. Paul circles back, doesn't he? At the end of verse 7, it is for the glory of God. This project is bigger than just our two churches. This is about the glory of God in Christ, in Piqua, Miami County, and the world. Together or not, one voice or not, this is what matters. Will God receive the greater glory if we come together or if we remain separate? If the Lord is pleased to unite our churches, the members of the New Pickwick Baptist Church will commit, taking cues from the scriptures and from our forebearers, to the following. We will participate in each other's joys and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will remember one another in prayer. We will be slow to take offense and quick to reconcile as our Savior requires. We will never allow Christian freedom to become a stumbling block to one another. In other words, we will welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And a hundred years from now, who knows, if the Lord tarries, Perhaps it will be our great-great-grandchildren in the faith telling of the greatness of their God and preserving His witness through us.
welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we are so much like the Roman church. We confess that our hearts have been selfish and factional. Will you please be merciful to us? Will you forgive us of our pride and of our self-seeking? Lord, humble us. Teach us to be like Jesus, to lay down our lives for the good of others, to love without insisting on our own way, to love without keeping bitter accounts with one another. Father, be with us in this vote. May your will be done. And grant us faith to accept the results of this vote, whichever way it goes. More than anything else, Lord, may the glory of Jesus resound clearly and loudly from this place until he comes again. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. At the end of our services, we read a section of Scripture which assures us that having placed our trust in the Lord and confessed our sins, He has forgiven us. Today's assurance of pardon comes from Psalm chapter 130, verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption.